Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Hello, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 187. My guest today is Rob Buchanan. Rob is a field technician and a boat builder working for an organization called Billion Oyster Project. And it is that organization that is the subject of our conversation today. So I had first heard about the Billion Oyster Project um, maybe three years ago four years ago when I was working in a school and they were very close by and I had some kids affiliated with one of their programs where the kids were sort of testing the water and raising some oysters. It's a fascinating organization to me. Well, first of all, because I love all things New York and I love the water, but essentially oysters were all over the place, native to this region and overfishing, I don't know if you say over-oystering, probably just overfishing, overfishing and pollution had completely decimated the oyster population. And I didn't even realize until this conversation that there's a whole ecosystem surrounding oysters and that oysters actually form a reef and a natural barrier to prevent erosion. So without them, not only do you miss out on an incredibly delicious food source, but the whole ecosystem of the area suffers. And they purify water. So we'll get into all this stuff. Rob is really fascinating. He's a cool guy. I'm really uh, grateful that he gave me time. This one was pretty close to home too, and I got to do it in person, which is always welcomed during the pandemic. So it was a quick voyage, about 25 minutes door to door to Kent Street here in Brooklyn. There's a little like storefront where uh, the Oyster Project has some, some stuff set up and that's where we recorded. You can go to the show notes for this episode if you want to find out more about the Billion Oyster Project or if you want to participate, volunteer, uh, donate money, help out in whatever way you can. There's also a link in the show notes for this episode to my Patreon account, and that is patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. You know what it is. It's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and you get some cool kickbacks. But if you have a bit of money and you're looking for someone to give it to, give it to the Billion Oyster Project first because they're doing something really cool. And I think revolutionary, it sounds weird saying revolutionary because it's almost like going going back to back to basics and back to nature. But I think it is part of a holistic approach and, you know, a small part of a much larger idea and larger plan to really green up our cities and to take steps to ensuring that, uh, you know, we have a better planet and environment in the future. So really cool stuff and really admirable stuff. So I'm going to stop now. Enjoy this episode with Rob Buchanan. I had done a project at some point for college when you're talking about the remnants of the Ice Age. And I know that like even Lake Ronkonkoma is the result of, I forget all the terminology, I'm sure you know it all, but of like a, a broken off glacier that just sort of sits there and thaws out over time. Yeah, like a kettle pond or a- That's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, is, uh, it is quite beautiful and we're, we're referencing Long Island. Um, 
I'd kind of like to, we just mentioned this before we were recording, but you mentioned how you had done a, a three-day row from out here out to the east end of Long Island. Yeah, we started, uh, I started with a friend. We had similar boats. They have sliding seats, so you get to use your legs and your back to propel them. So they're faster than, it's not like a rowboat. I mean, it is a rowboat, but it's like a very fast rowboat. It's faster than a kayak. And this was in the sound? Yeah, well, we started at the Navy Yard in Brooklyn, and the, in, the, in the harbor, you can catch the tide, which is like a big conveyor belt, and it just sucks you out to the sound, and it's really nice because, I mean, you could row to the sound without ever putting your oars in the water because the tide would carry you there. Wow. Once in the sound, the, tide, the effect of the tide isn't as great, so you really have to row. And, and uh, you know, it's long. The first day we got to Oyster Bay, and my friend was completely wiped out and he was like okay I think you know we need to take a break so we stopped and uh, we actually took his boat back to the city because he's like I don't think I'm gonna and it took me like three weeks to find time in my schedule and to have the right forecast because you don't want to row into the wind you really want to tail yeah so I had to wait for the right forecast the right weekend anyway the so the second day when I finally got back out there in early August was to from Oyster Bay through Smithtown Bay, um, had lunch at Crane Neck. I don't know if you know that spot. I'm not familiar, no. It was a fantastic point. Um, no public, a- or virtually no public access from the land. Oh, for coming down awesome. from the water, there's this long beach with nobody on it, and it's just a great, so I had lunch there and then went on past Port Jefferson, got to Shoreham at dusk, kept going, because I wanted to get as far east as I could, and camped underneath some big bluffs, pretty near to Wildwood State Park. Oh, that's amazing. And uh, I was really worried that somebody was going to come down in the night and say, hey, it's my beach, got to get off of it. Yeah. But I was really tired, and there, and the staircases in that part of the island were really far apart, so I assumed, you know, like big houses and people up there aren't going to come down. And, um, and at 2 in the morning, I heard footsteps, and I saw a light on the beach, and I was a little worried about that, but they were just two fishermen, oh. and they were walking out to the point to fish, and they just went right on by. I was uh, going to ask if you saw any schools of bluefish out there, because that's what we used to fish for. Yeah, there, sure. I, I, I saw, I didn't see, I don't, you don't, I see the smaller, a lot of smaller fish, and, and, and they're obviously being moved by bigger fish, and yeah. you see the small ones on the surface. Anyway. That was the, the, the second night, and then the third day was just all the way out to Greenport in one kind of burst. And uh, I actually got there pretty early. It was like 2 in the afternoon. I had a lot of time left. So, Have you done any other big trips like that? Yeah, I rode the Hudson from oh. New York um, in a bigger boat with three other people and a dog. <laughs> <laughs> we rode from, this was many years ago, we rode from um, Pier 40, which is on the downtown, you know, it's in Tribeca, really. Um, and we rode up the Hudson to, um, we wound up in Waterford, which is where the Erie Canal starts. So it's past, a little bit past Albany. Okay. You go through a dam, which is the end of the tidal Hudson, and then you're on the upper Hudson, and we, I think it's just six or eight miles on the, on the upper Hudson to Waterford. That's amazing. That took eight days. <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine so. So what is your, I guess, uh, what's your background? Because obviously, like, you love aquatic things. I'm a boat person. That's really how I got it. I, I came into oysters through boats. 
Okay. Really? And uh, I grew up um, in Santa Cruz, California, and my parents were sailors, and they had a boat, a sailboat, in the marina there, and I had, um, the but sailboat had a dinghy, so I had command of the dinghy when I was a child, and I could row around the marina and stuff. Big responsibility. Well, it was... <laughs> It was an adventure every time. You know, you just go look at boats and people fishing and talk yeah. to people. And so that's where it started. And then I, uh, I really wanted to, uh, this sport called rowing, which I didn't, nobody did, but I'd seen and knew about it. And I really wanted to do that in college. So I rowed competitively in college. I learned, I mean, it's not that hard to learn how to row. You just got to be tall and like punishment. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out then. <laughs> and so I rode in college, and, uh, and after college, I wanted to keep rowing, and it's, but I also wanted to work in magazines, and I was in New York City, downtown, and there really, it, it, the harbor isn't, the lower, har, you know, the, the, the harbor around the Battery in downtown New York is not set up for sliding seats, skinny, collegiate-type racing shells. It's just too rough. Mm. So you couldn't row boats like that because they would swamp. So we had, you had to, we had to go all the way uptown to row, and it's a long trip and um, hassle. And uh, eventually, I met this guy who was building boats with high school kids. His name was Mike Davis, and he had a a nonprofit called Floating the Apple. And um, I saw one of his boats come out of a container. I was just riding my bike by on the west side, pulled the boat out of the container. I was like, Oh my God, that boat! It was wooden and beautiful and kind of classically shaped. But also I could see instantly that it was a boat that could handle all the chop and the wakes and the slop in the harbor. It wasn't going to swamp. And uh, so I stopped to talk to him, and he was a very clever, deft kind of salesman, and he kind of wrote me in. It's like, oh, yeah, you got to come. We're building one on, you know, 42nd Street. Come over and check it out. And I did, and then he was like, oh, yeah, here, pick up some a cup of epoxy, stir it, and then put it on there. And he really... <laughs> He completely played me, but I loved it. I, I, I hadn't built, I wasn't, a, I'm not a woodworker or anything. I mean, I guess I am now, but I figured out from working with him how to build all the steps that are required to build a plywood replica rowing gig. They're called gigs. And um, so I got involved with him. At the same time, I was transitioning out of magazines because magazines were kind of over. I guess, that, I guess I'm just going to go through the whole story here. Yeah, that's okay. I'm fascinated. Okay. So um, I was transitioning out of magazines, and I'd just gotten married at age like 42, and my wife was like, uh, this magazine lifestyle is not really going to do it. We're about to have a daughter. You need to get a real job. So I got a job teaching at, at uh, Eugene Lang College, which is in the village, part of the new school. And the dean, after the first year, I was teaching journalism, the dean said, we need some ideas for kind of hands-on collaborative courses that get students out of the classroom. I think he said that because they didn't have any more classroom space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I was, I'd been building boats with, this, with Mike and floating the apple, and I said, well, we could build a boat. And he loved that idea. And so we started building boats at the new school on 14th Street with students. And I was, you know... I was in charge, and uh, I really had to like plan it, think it through. They're not 
Uh, one guy came by, like a real boat builder came by and said, I got news for you, your boat's never going to make a cover, <laughs> oh, no. cover of Wooden Boat Magazine. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay. I don't yeah, know. but does it float? But, it, but we're going to build this boat in a semester, and it's going. Yeah, and everybody in the class is going to row it. And you know, what what counts here is it is it putting people on the water? Because that was always Mike's mission was public access and keeping the harbor public and getting the public out on the especially young people on, on, out onto the water. And that that part I really liked it was like the public yeah. access. The, the harbor is you know is public space. That line that was one of his lines, and that really resonated with me. It's like yeah. New York City, you know, everybody owns everything. There's a few parks here and there. There's Central Park, kind of big. But the harbor is really the commons. That's really the public space. And when we say the harbor, we're talking about like the southern tip uh, or the southern point of Manhattan where the two rivers converge. It, there are lots of definitions. Okay. And it, to me, it's kind of interchangeable with the estuary, which is a place where fresh and salt water meet. But I would say, you know, from my, I mean, let's say my harbor or my area of familiarity is really from the George Washington Bridge or even maybe further north of Palisades down to the Narrows and then up the East River and out to, to Throg's Neck. You know, that's to me is the harbor. So it's all of the kind of urban waterway and all the urban waterways that feed into the Hudson East River, you know, Newtown Creek, the Gowanus. Um, the Bronx Kill, Harlem River, those, that's all the harbor. Okay, I got but you. I think a lot of people would agree with you that, yeah, the harbor is from the Battery to the Statue of Liberty to the Narrow, you know, just everybody has their own. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we started building these boats at the new school, and, um, and that turned into a passion. I just I started to get fast, and I, I, the course was building a boat and using it to explore the harbor, but it was also a lot of the politics and the history yeah. and, the, and, and, and the environmental history of the harbor and that environmental side of it really started to interest me and the kind of trade-off between the commercial development of the port um, the dredging that that requires um, and the hardening of the edge of the of the harbor you know the the bulkheading and the, the kind of making the edge into private property the elimination of what used to be all soft the beaches and the wetlands the filling of the wetlands all that stuff really really interested in me because, you know, we, we killed the estuary. I mean, we didn't kill it, but we, we squeezed 90% of the life out of it. So that really fascinated me, and that eventually led me to really want to work in the environmental field in the harbor, you know. And so after 11 years of teaching college, uh, I got an offer to work at what was then called New York Harbor Foundation and what is now called Billion Oyster Project. Actually, we're legally still called the New York Harbor Foundation, but we're doing business as the Billion Oyster Project. And that's because of all the things that the New York Harbor Foundation did. The, the, the chief one was we, we supported the Harbor School, which is a public high school on Governor's Island. But of all the initiatives that we came up with, it was the oyster initiative, the idea of like reseeding the harbor with the oysters that used to be there that really exploded and took off and became so big that it became our primary focus and, and um, you know, our main source of funding and ultimately our name. Now, you alluded to something. And before we were recording, I was mentioning how like, my dad grew up on the Great South Bay and they would go clamming and they would just reach down and pick them up. I had read something once that 
um, probably the time was, because Manhattan Island was populated by indigenous people, but uh, I'm assuming it was, you know, when it was colonized, that you could just reach down and, and pull oysters out. And that often people who were in like great poverty as a source of food could just go pull them right out of the rivers. Uh, is it, am I accurate on that? Yeah, well, absolutely. The, the, if you look at the old charts of the harbor, there are entire bays that are just marked as oyster beds and, and you, they're sort of drawn in and you can see they were just big oyster flats. You know, it, so shallow that it, at low tide, the, the tops of the oysters would be protruding from the water. And wow. those were what were mined. <laughs> I mean, mined, mined eventually mined in the sense of really commercially exploited. But, but in, the, in the early days, yeah, if you didn't have anything to eat, that was always a food source. But, you know, so it was a, a, a food source for poor people, for sure. But it was also, I mean, everybody ate them. They were, you know, you could buy them for a penny a piece in, in these oyster carts that were in the streets. And, and uh, you know, they'd open them for you. And you just, if you were, needed a quick snack, you'd just grab a few on your way. So anyway, they were there. They were everywhere. I, I, I have also read, you know, The Big Oyster and those, those books. And they, the, the, I, I don't remember the exact figures, but the one that really stands out, the claim that stands out to me is that there was nowhere in the world... No estuary in the world had more oysters than this estuary. That this, there were more oysters here than in any other single estuary in the, in the entire world. So I, I'm not sure that's true, but, and I, it depends on how you measure the estuary, but it, it, it's clear that the oyster was the baseline species. The baseline, not just species, but the baseline physical characteristic of the estuary was oyster reefs, oyster flats. Oyster beds, whatever you want to call them, those reefs were really the bedrock, so to speak, on which everything, all the other life in the estuary depended. And the comparison that I think a, a good comparison is that that an oyster reef is to a temperate zone, or to this temperate zone estuary, what a coral reef is to a, a tropical ecosystem. It's the matrix that all the other life kind of hinges on, is, is born in, swims around, their life is based on that. And like a coral reef, it also has, it has those huge habitat advantages. But like a coral reef, it also has a protective function in that it protects a coral reef, often the fringing reef protects islands from erosion and storm damage. And the same thing goes for these oyster reefs. This, at least historically, they were so big that they shielded the land from the impact of, you know, whatever storm or swell or, or, or wave came along. So when you remove those, you know, I mean, among the many impacts of mining the oysters industrially and, and just killing them with pollution um, uh, was that, that this shoreline protection feature was, was removed. So. Wow. That's fascinating. I never knew that, and I didn't realize even, and I'm thinking in my head, like, oh, yeah, there's all sorts of avian creatures that were probably also dependent upon oh, oysters yeah. and all other the, mollusks. All the tiny fish and the crabs and, and, the, and the shrimp and the snails that will live in and around an oyster reef are then food for all these other species. So if you could, if you could restore those reefs, even a small percentage of them, you would see benefits immediately in terms of habitat for other creatures. And, and that, I think... That's our number one argument for doing this, habitat, where we're creating habitat. 
and um, and that's going to be a good thing for the estuary. We're greening it up. We're making it more productive. We're bringing life back to the estuary. But there's also the the coastal protection argument, and then there's the the water uh, water quality argument. Now, you know, do oysters clean the water? There's a lot of debate about whether that's the right word. They certainly filter the water. They're filter feeders, and they filter a lot of water. If you put harbor water in a tank, in a 50-gallon tank with one oyster in, it, it, it will filter that water in a day, meaning it will take everything that's floating in the water out of it and run it through its system, its gills. And, and, um, and so the water will look a lot cleaner and will be a lot cleaner. But whether we can introduce enough oysters to clean the water in New York Harbor, I think that's a very big it's ambitious. claim. Yeah. And I don't think we really want to quite make that claim. I think we want to say that we are instead that we are, you know, exploring the potential of oysters to affect water quality. How many oysters would it take in what kind of conditions, in what setting to have an impact on water quality? And how, you know, their water quality has a lot of parameters. What, kind, what are we talking about? Are we talking about sewage pollution? Are we talking about industrial toxins? Are we talking about nitrogen? What are the parameters that you're, you're interested in? Can oysters resolve all of those? Can they bring all those levels down to where you want them? We don't know, but it's part of the experiment and you know, we'll see. I have, so I have a question about water quality and I'll, I'll give an anecdote. When I worked in Red Hook, you know, after work, my colleagues and I would go out and we would go out on like Smith Street. And I lived in Bay Ridge at the time, so I would have to take the R train so I would walk up Union from Smith Street to 4th Ave to catch the train at 4th and 9th. And when you're going up Union, you cross over, it's a footbridge and then just a regular bridge, um, over the Gowanus Canal. And you smell it when you get close to it, and you can, you can see oil slicks on the top of it, and then there's all these almost like urban legends about like, well, there was a whale stuck in it one time and it died from pollution. How did the waterways get so bad? And like, what is there a major source of pollution? Well, and the Gowan, I mean, if you look at the historical maps, the Gowanus Canal was not a canal. It was a, a, a wetlands. It was a big swamp with various head streams coming into it. One of the, you know, the biggest head stream came down from Park Slope. So it was a freshwater creek coming down a pretty big hill with a lot of water in it emptying into this swamp or wetlands, tidal wetlands. So the, you know, it was an estuary, a mini estuary in itself. And it was completely, you know, when, when supposedly that's where the biggest oysters in the harbor were, the dinner plate sized oysters, the historical accounts of those. And how did it turn into the fetid, polluted canal that it is? Well, you know, the city grew, um, real estate, was at a premium. Can you create real estate by filling in wetlands? Yes, you can. That's what happened. You know, we got squeezed it, we canalized this, the old streams. You can still see a little bit of the shape of the old stream in the way the canal bends, but we forced it into a box. And into that box, we then dumped everything that poured in off the streets. And this was, you know, in the days before the sewers, uh, before the sewage treatment plants. So this, all the sewage from all those human settlements came straight into it. and it was very difficult for the system to flush itself. 
you know, the tide came in this little narrow opening and it flushed a little bit, but it couldn't get up to the back. And so it really turned into, and then, you know, the, in the, in the sort of industrial age, all the factories got built along it. They needed water to run and to, and water to dump their stuff into. So yeah, it really, it, it got bad. I'm not sure though, that it's like the worst. Mm. I think it's, uh, I think there's some pretty strong competition from Newtown Creek in terms of like, the, if you want to say like the foulest waterway, and then I because oil was stored there, right? There was a lot of you know the, the birthplace of the oil American oil industry was wow. kind of on Newtown Creek, and so there's a lot of industrial contamination there. Maybe more. It's bigger, and then there's Flushing Creek, another you know horribly uh, compromised waterway, and 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 many other smaller ones that are that are also uh, Wallabout Channel and the Navy Yard that are also um, very challenged in terms of water quality. But it, it's really interesting to look at those places, to understand them historically, and then, and then design experiments or projects, restoration projects, to see if small changes can have an impact on, on water quality or, and bring them. And, and so now in the Gowanus, it's already, I mean, the biggest experiment they did was they built a tunnel, and this is, you know, um, I don't know how long ago, but anyway, early 20th century, they built a tunnel from the East River to the head of the Guanas and put a big ship propeller in it to pump, not fresh, but let's say uh, clean or relatively clean water from the East River into the head of the Guanas Canal just to keep it circulating. And that made a big difference. Um, and since then, you know, there's the EPA has started a, a pilot dredging project. Some of the Toxins and, and contaminated sediment in one section have been removed. So there's a lot of life in there now. You see fish and, and shellfish and, I mean, it's, it's definitely not a dead, dead zone. And I, I promise people I'll get to sort of the, what the organization is doing to remediate this in a moment. But maybe it's a weird connection, but I remember when uh, Hurricane Sandy happened, I was living in, in Bay Ridge. And at the time, it was like, oh, we need to maybe start rethinking <laughs> the way things are organized. And you mentioned like the erosion factor, um, because we have so many people crammed into this tiny space now. Uh, are, do we do we have the the capabilities and the capacity right now to have an adequate uh, like waste management system? Or because on Long Island, there would be times when they would close the beaches down and they were like, uh, water's contaminated. Um, and now I know Long Island, there aren't sewers, but I would imagine here in New York that that would be an incredible task to try to manage the waste of, what, 10 million people? I think it's, we're almost at nine. Okay. Headed for 10, supposedly. Do we have the capacity to handle it? No. But, I mean, I think they're really smart people worrying about it and doing something. And we have a lot more capacity than we did uh, 50 years ago. You know, when, it wasn't until the Clean Water Act that we started uh, building all the, the wastewater treatment plants that we have now. So that was a major investment that the federal government basically paid for. And that made a huge change in harbor water quality. Okay. So we no longer dump sewage into the harbor unless it rains. And then we can't help dumping it into the harbor. We, there's no way to prevent sewage bypasses when it rains. Whoa. Why, why is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because 
The city is built with a, what's called a combined sewer system. Your, when, when you flush the toilet or run the dishwasher, take a shower, that water goes down the pipe in your building. It's your gray water. Gray or brown. <laughs> color it, is. It, goes, it goes down the pipe into the sewer. When it rains, all that storm water, all that rainwater goes down the grade in the street into the same sewer. It's one pipe. Every, I mean, not every, but most of New York City is on a combined sewer system, meaning there's one pipe running down the middle of the street and everything feeds into it. The problem is when it rains, there's so much runoff because the city's completely paved and the, you know, the roofs and, and, and it's all streets and sidewalks and roofs that the rain has nowhere to go, can't even get into the ground. It goes straight into the sewer and it combines with the sanitary waste and it charges down the pipe to the plant and the plant was designed to handle dry weather and, and has the capacity to handle all the dry weather waste that we create, but it does not and will never have the capacity to, to handle all of the, the stormwater combined with a rain event. It's just too much water. Even a quarter of an inch or in some places less than a quarter of an inch will overwhelm the capacity of the treatment plant. And so there must be bypasses. And that's where this, this question of sewage pollution, why it's such a lingering problem. It, we just, in, until we get rid of the car and plant the streets with, you know, take the pavement off the streets and green up the roofs, um, we're, we're gonna have this issue. That's pretty horrifying. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think a, people actually know that. I, I think, I think, I mean, a lot of young people seem to know about it now. It's kind of impressive how many people wow. say, oh yeah, I know about combined sewage overflow. Um, but, but yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people don't know about it, they don't think about it, or, or when they think about it, it, they immediately write the whole harbor off because of this problem. They're like, oh well, yeah, okay. Well, we're never gonna fix that big, biggest mm. city in the country you know, built on an estuary, we can't fix that. So why worry about the harbor? It's just, it is what it is, it's, it's a sewer. But that's not true either. Because the system really is pretty well designed by people who care, um, it, it isn't a problem until it rains. So between rainstorms, the harbor actually is swimmable in most places, not maybe the head of the Gowanus or the head of Newtown Creek, but otherwise it meets the standards for bathing throughout the harbor. And even when it rains, in parts of the open harbor, like out by the Statue of Liberty, it's fine. You can, it totally will meet all of the standards, the bacteria standards for swimming. So I was going to ask about that because you, I'm assuming when we're, we're bringing back oysters, the conditions need to be right. So when you're testing, are you testing like pH level? Or are you looking for specific pollutants and bacteria that's in the water? Right now, because this program is really something that, that BOP has, um, has, part, has, has, has almost sponsored, has, has picked up and adopted, let's say, um, the, this program was designed by, uh, as a citizen science program, to test only for sewage pollution. So the only parameter that we looked for when we created the program was sewage pollution, and, and that is measured by measuring um, what's called a fecal indicator bacteria. One bacteria that, if it's there, means that it's likely that there's sewage pollution in the water, that everything else that comes in sewage is there. It itself isn't a harmful bacteria. It's called Enterococcus, but it's the standard indicator bacteria. So that's all we test for right now. And uh, 
I think that one of the things that will happen in the next few years is that we will expand our testing to look at other parameters uh, because oysters themselves are not necessarily um, challenged by sewage in the water. They, they seem to do quite well in a lot of situations where there's they're high bacteria. Okay. But if we knew more about dissolved oxygen, about nitrates, about salinity, I mean, if we could really monitor that at all these sites, that would be great. And that would definitely add to our understanding of where oysters are going to do well and not. We just haven't gotten there yet. We started with sewage because that's the thing that people care about. And, and if they're going to get in the water, that's the thing they want to know about. Like, can I swim here? Can I go kayaking here? Can I put my kid in a kayak here? What if we get splashed in the face? What's going to happen? So all that data that we're collecting and have been collecting for nine years um, is designed to answer that question. And I think on the, on, on, on the whole, it's pretty reassuring. So I've heard of other species of animals being reintroduced, like wolves in certain places. Uh, has this specific idea with oysters been done before, or is this the first time that it's been attempted? I mean, I'd like to say that we, we pioneered this, and uh, Pete Malinowski who, who, and, and Murray Fisher, who came up with the idea, um, you know, just just came up with it, and they're, they're, they're the originators. But um, no, we're not. And there are other substantial restoration efforts um, around the country. Um, and, and I think probably the most substantial one is in the Chesapeake system, Chesapeake uh, Bay, because, um, because there's two reasons for that. One is they have a really, still to this day, a really important oyster fishery, meaning they, they are eating the oysters wow. out of the bay. We're not doing that in New York because of the aforementioned yeah. sewage pollution issues. Uh, and the other is that they're really near. There's this city on Chesapeake Bay called Washington, D.C., <laughs> where a lot of federal money gets <laughs> allocated. Never and, heard of uh, it. And so they're first in line. And, I mean, that's, that's a New York, a prejudiced New York view of the situation. They should have a lot of money. They have a, an, a, um, you know, an important oyster fishery. They have five states involved in the different parts of the bay. Uh, it's a big, big system, and they, it's good that they're spending all that money. We just like to get, you know, a proportional amount of money up here, federal money, to, to push oyster restoration along, too. And I think that'll come in time. But um, anyway, it, so to answer your question, um, people have been talking about restoring oysters for a long time, and they're doing it in a lot of places. And um, Chesapeake uh, is, is a place where they're doing it with Pretty good success, I think, and um, so we we talk to them a lot and look to them, and and um, I think I think what's different about ours is that um, people never wrote the Chesapeake off, you know, they mm. the way they wrote the New York Harbor off, and and so we're also facing. I mean, in addition to trying to get oysters to grow here, which is not always easy, we're also facing this kind of educational battle of getting people to change their minds about the harbor and is it can it be a, can it ever be a healthy place again and it, you know a place we could eat well a lot of people already eat fish out of it but could we eat the oysters out of the harbor again someday that would be a great i mean that's that's the goal yeah and i think it's sort of you pointed to the fact that like it could be part of an all-encompassing plan to make cities drastically greener into the future and it's likely something that we're going to have to do because we can't keep this pace up that, that we've been doing. I mean, you know, there's urban farming, upland farming that's mm. pretty popular. Community gardens, urban farming. I don't think they're entirely 
a separate thing from this idea of right. That's not, yeah. oysters. I mean, we're not doing it for food purposes, if someday that's possible. And it might be possible in like the lower harbor, what's called the lower harbor, which is um, out, Raritan Bay is the other name for it, but between Staten Island and Sandy Hook. You know, the water standards down there are really pretty good. Maybe someday, sooner rather than later, you could have an oyster harvest from there again. That used to be big oystering grounds. Yeah, is there like a projected timeline or sort of like end game to this? Or is it like once water quality is in a certain way or certain species that were native to this area come back, that this project will be finished? No, it's pretty open-ended, really. But we, I mean, I know that when the Billion Oyster Project was founded in, in I think, 2012 or 2013, the goal was, uh, I mean, the, the initial concept was we want to put a billion oysters into the harbor by 2035. In 20 years, we want to put a billion oysters in the harbor. Will a billion oysters be that magical tipping point when... You know, the, the, the amount of oysters in the harbor makes everything else start to turn green and, it, and they, the reefs start to propagate and grow and knit together. No, probably not. But it just, it was a play on the Million Tree Project. It was mm. a Bloomberg initiative. If, well, if they're going to plant a million trees, let's plant a billion oysters. So that's where we came up with that. But, and, and the 20-year time frame is just something that sounded good at the time. And I think it's, it's probably much longer initiative that you you know it's generational yeah and maybe it has a different name someday you know it's it's it becomes the new york harbor estuary project or who knows but i think this oysters have caught people's imagination good way to raise money people love oysters um people with money love oysters so uh it that's really you know i mean that, that it's a big part of our success and, you know, I had obviously first, well, obvious to you because we talked about it, but first heard about the project through working in schools. Uh, so how do you get kids involved and what, how do they contribute? So um, we, we divide ourselves into two teams. We have a restoration team and they, they are, although they also work with students, um, particularly in the hatchery, where students at the Harbor School are helping to raise these oysters, these, the larvae, they plant the oysters, they select the sites and they plant the oysters in the harbor. The education team is working, and we started with a focus on middle school, uh, New York City public middle schools, but now we've expanded. We're working with elementary schools and high schools and even some college uh, classes. Um, and our idea is to, to have, I mean, we have a lot of educational initiatives and we've created a lot of curriculum, but I think our, our sort of basic training it revolves around what we call an oyster research station, which is a, a small cage that contains uh, a small number of oysters, maybe just a few dozen. Um, and we give them to you when they're very young, maybe the size of your fingernail. Wow. And you track them as they grow. You hang it off the, whatever pier you can get to that's close to your school. You go down there with your teacher, and we're talking pre-COVID now, and you pull this cage up and you measure those oysters. Then you go back a couple months later and you pull it up again and you measure the oysters again and you chart their growth. You see what else is living in the cage because it's a very good illustration of this habitat argument because when you pull a cage up, there's all these other fish and shrimp and crabs that flop out. So you, you survey those and you, you, you do a census of those. 
and you also test the water quality for all those parameters we, well, a lot of the parameters we were talking about, not bacteria because that requires a lab and stuff. Anyway, all this data you then enter onto a collective database which we call the platform and then you, if your teacher is on the program and you're ambitious, you then create a research project using this database comparing your oyster, I mean, for example, comparing the growth of your oysters with the growth of another set of oysters in another part of the harbor. Why did mine do better or worse? Mm. What are the other factors? What are the possible... And so it's, it's really, in some ways, it's like a... I mean, computer science is the wrong word, but it's a data-driven data curriculum using oysters and field science as the source of the data, but you're also learning to grapple with spreadsheets and, uh, you know, data visualization. You're, you're doing graphs. You're... you're, you're it's a complete educational approach, and we, we ultimately want the DOE to adopt it as a kind of a middle school, maybe a high school, a science curriculum. Why not? Why do you? Why should you study, you know, the wolf and, uh, you know, the caribou, in your high school biology class? Why, why not study the oyster, or you know, it, it accompany those studies with the, with the oyster and the crab and the and the and the estuary, the New York. New Jersey estuary, as your as the system and the and the study focus uh, focus of your study. So that's what the education team is trying to do, and um, you know it's a, lots of challenges. It's it's it can be hard, and you know maybe the biggest recent challenge is is COVID. Yeah, I'd and, imagine. You know, yeah. all of a sudden field trips are just out of the question. And, yeah, and going down to the water, which was always challenging for any public school. Administrator, I don't want my kids anywhere near the water. You know, a kid drowned at Coney Island last year. I can't be responsible for that. Well, they're going to a pier. Pier has a railing. Nobody's going to fall in. They'll be, you know. Anyway, with COVID, it's like, well, you're just not going to do any field trips. Or if you do a field trip, it can be two students maximum or something like that. So that's been really been a challenge. And so we're, you know, like everybody else, scrambling and developing virtual field trips and Zoom field trips, and we're pulling the cages and showing the kids what they've got, and it's really been a challenge. There are volunteer opportunities, though, where people actually get in the water, right? I saw some really cool pictures of kids. Yes, and, um, you know, we have what we call community reefs, which is somewhere in between the, the big reef installations that we do and those little oyster research stations I was talking about. A community reef is like a big filing cabinet. And there's some in this room, actually. And you, you, uh, they're hanging right there in the window. You see those oh, files yeah. hanging. And you pull those files out one by one, and people can look at the oysters in the files and monitor their growth. Uh, but there's a much larger number of oysters in those, those community reefs. Anyway, it, in a normal year, yes, we would have... Uh, you know, we'd really be numbers driven and trying to get as many school kids down to the water and as many of them involved in this. And this year it's, it's you know, we're all still numbers driven, but it's going to be virtual numbers. It may be the strangest question that I've ever thought of in 187 episodes. And somebody who's a marine biologist is probably like tuning out right now when I say this, but... How does reproduction work for oysters? Because, like, does an oyster lay eggs? And I'm, like, thinking in my head, does an oyster find the shell? Does the shell grow around it? I mean, that, to me, is even weirder than reproduction, is how 
any shellfish grows its shell. It's just so, it's like you build a house around yourself. Because it's not an exoskeleton. It's not. It is an exoskeleton. Oh. It, 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 you build a house around yourself by excreting, you know, calcium. Calcium, yeah. <laughs> And, and you form this shell around yourself, but then as you grow, you somehow break down the inside of the shell and add it to the outside. So it'd be like building a shelter on yourself and then taking the two by fours off that are right around you and reaching around outside and nailing. I don't know. I don't really understand how that works, but it does. And it has for hundreds of millions of years. Reproduction is a matter for oysters. They, they can't move. Once they, as larvae, they settle, that's where they are for the rest of their life. They're never moving. So they're not climbing on top of one another or anything else to, you know, to, to reach their partner. What happens is as the, the water warms um, at some point at the right rate and it reaches the right temperature, an oyster, I believe, and I'm, this, I'm not the expert in this, I'm not the staff biologist, but I believe that uh, a female oyster will suddenly decide that it's time to release her gametes, her eggs. Mm -hmm. And so there's a release. Oh, and when that happens, that's accompanied by pheromones or chemical tags that are sensed by all of the other oysters that are in close proximity. On a reef, there are many, many oysters in close proximity. So all of the other oysters that have reached sexual maturity and that have been sort of you know, working their way up to this temperature tipping point, release their gametes. The males release their sperm, the other females release their eggs, and there's giant milky clouds, like, you know, like a lot of spawning events mm -hmm. in the water, and those, those sperm find those eggs, and they're fertilized, and then the larvae that result are free swimming, but only for two weeks. So they're, they're almost microscopic, they're really small. And so many must die. Oh yeah. Yeah, but that's, their, that's the reproductive strategy is, you know, you, you, you release a million eggs yeah. and 10 make it to the next stage. You know, it's, it's whatever that strategy, I forget what there's a word for that kind of strategy. Catastrophic. <laughs> <laughs> Shot in the it's dark. It's the opposite of what humans do. Yeah. Yeah. We have one at a time and we, you know, take 20 years to get them to maturity. If we're lucky, it takes 20 years. But anyway, so... Anyway, these, what's interesting is the larvae have two weeks or so of swimming around, and then they have to settle on something, where, and that's where they'll spend the rest of their lives. But in two weeks, of course, the tides can take them anywhere, and a lot of them get eaten by other creatures. Some of them settle, and then some of a very small percentage of the ones that settle successfully grow and, and reach maturity. But that, they can be scattered up and down the harbor. We, we saw a recruitment, we call it a recruitment event when, when this happens naturally. We saw one last fall that was really substantial and we saw spat baby, baby oysters up and down the Hudson side all the way as far south as the village and way up into Yonkers and then down the Harlem River a little bit. But we didn't notice it on the East River side. So, you know, where did that, all that, where did those larvae come from? You know, was it our oysters that because we have oysters up there in the Tappan Zee, or was it a wild oyster population? We don't know. If we could do genetic analysis of all of our oysters and all of these wild oysters, we would have a better idea. But that's a, you know, that's a expensive, and, a, and it's maybe something that we will undertake in the future. But we just don't have the capacity right now. Yeah, I was wondering if you are aware of like the different oyster species. 
Uh, like if there's a certain type of oyster that is native to this area, I don't know. Well, all of the oysters from Maine down to Florida and around to New Orleans, the Gulf, it's all the same species. Oh, wow. It's the eastern oyster. Now, you know, when you go into the, you know, Grand Central Oyster Bar and they give you a choice of 50 oysters, uh, a lot of those oysters are eastern oysters, but that are grown in different waters under different conditions. So they could taste differently somewhat. And then there's the Pacific oysters and there's, you know, more species there. And then there are farmers who are growing imported species. But here, we grow one species. Now, we get our broodstock source from different places up north in Maine and, and Cape Cod um, and Fisher's Island, which is at the end of Long Island. Um, so we have different sources that we pull from to, to get our broodstock, our, our breeder oysters that we breed in the, in the hatchery. Uh, but they're all basic. I mean, they're all the same species. There's no... And we're just trying to find, you know, the the particular local variety of that species that seems to prosper mm. in the harbor. How do you know, like when the kids are monitoring them, when is an oyster ready to be put out into the harbor? Well, we put them out really, I wish I, uh, I had some here to show you. We put them out um, uh, as soon as we can. So they can be, uh, we just set out a, a new batch uh, this fall, and they were they started out the size of my my pinky fingernail. They're now uh, they're now like the size of my big toenail. So they've they've come a long way just in a month and a half. Um, but you know, the, when we put them out that small, we expect and we get a lot of mortality. So we might put a thousand oysters. A thousand really juvenile oysters, that pinky size, into a cage, like one of those ORSs. And we might come back in the spring and find that only 100 are left. And we might come back six months after that and find that only 30 are left. That's normal. You know, they outcompete, some yeah. just die. Uh, and that's the way oysters are. Do you see like swarms of birds, like you'd see with like feeder fish out in the water? You mean feeding on oysters? Yeah. No, uh, there aren't many birds that really directly oh. eat oysters. Um, you mean you hear about it? There's a bird called an oyster catcher, but it really doesn't eat oysters, or not very often. Um, so we don't see that. I think the, pred the predation that happens at for, well, you know right after their lar in the, when they reach their larval stage, a lot of uh, other plankton, phyto uh, zo zooplankton, eat them like right away, and then as they get bigger, the predators are crabs and ah. fish with powerful jaws like blackfish or, or oyster toadfish. Um, and then as they get bigger than that and they're big enough to withstand the jaws or the, the claws of anything, uh, there is one predator called an oyster drill, which is a little snail, like you know, less than an inch long, but it has a very, very sharp proboscis or tongue kind of and it can drill right through a shell even of a medium I, I think it has it can't go through like a really thick one but it can go through a small to medium sized oyster shell and then it like dipping its straw into a milkshake it just kind of extracts the oyster which in a sense sounds like slaughter but I would imagine like you would also want those oyster drills because something depends on that and something depends on that and that sort of like leads to that whole ecosystem you're well talking we about. personally have a hard time with oyster drills but 
you're right. What are we going to do? Are we going to start killing oyster drills or try and devise some, like, bring in some invasive species that's going to eat oyster? No. It's part of the system. You just got to let it play out. But it can be distressing when you put a new oyster reef in and everything gets eaten by oyster drills. You're like, oh, my God. But that's how it is. And that's when you're reintroducing stuff, that kind of thing can happen. Ah. We found that it, it, it happened more further south here in this system because... And we don't know why, but we think maybe there's a link to, to salinity because in, in low salinity water, like at the Tappan Zee, you know, further north, they, there just aren't any oyster drills. They don't seem to tolerate the low salinity. So that might be a reason, but there are many factors. And it's, you know, without years of study, you don't really know. Surprisingly, uh, my girlfriend and I, we enjoy oysters, as a lot of people do. Uh, we took a, we kind of backpacked and bussed around Morocco. A lot of people that go to Morocco will go to Tangier. It's very close to Spain. You can take a ferry. And so there's people that'll go even just for like the day to go to Tangier. Uh, we wanted to see everything. So <laughs> we went all the way south. We went to the Sahara. And we were coming back up the coast, which is on the Atlantic Ocean, to make our way back into Spain. We stopped in a town called Essaouira. Yeah. You're familiar. Well, I haven't been there, but I've heard. Isn't it kind of a famous surf spot? So that I'm not sure of. I definitely could see that. A lot of it is still being developed. Um, there isn't like a huge tourism, international tourism industry in like the southern part of Morocco. But the king goes there, uh. and he's got his own spot, and like you can see it out uh, out by the water, and it's a huge beach that people will vacation to. Um, so surfing would definitely make sense because there's a couple like breakwaters you can see now that I'm like thinking back. Um, but we had read online, like there's a place that has oysters. Um, so we went to this restaurant and in two days of being there, we went there three times and we were the only people there and they had their little oyster farm right out on the water that they pulled them from. And it, the best oysters we've ever had, like absolutely (laughs) incredible. It's something I never expected. You, never associate, you don't associate that with Morocco. No, right? not at all. That's so cool. Yeah, really wow. cool. Um, I wonder what species that that is. Almost certainly a different species. Of That's oyster. what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, it'd be interesting to Google it and see what it is. And uh, wow. Yeah. That's great. Um, so if somebody's listening right now, they've never heard of. The Billion Oyster Project, and like, hey, this is fascinating. I'd like to get involved either through volunteering my time or opening my wallet um, or even spreading the word. Like, how do people get involved? Um, well, I'm glad you mentioned the opening your wallet part because <laughs> no, I'm uh, tomorrow yeah. night, just coincidentally, tomorrow night is the uh, first virtual Billion Oyster Party. In the past, we've always uh, our, our, our big annual fundraiser we call the Billion Oyster Party, and we've invited oyster farmers from up and down the East Coast and even from the Pacific Coast to come and to um, display, I mean, to actually to open oysters for our guests. The guests pay, I thought it was actually a pretty reasonable price. It was $175 last year, I think. And you can go around to 60 or 70 farmers' stands and eat all the oysters you want. Whoa. Stay as long as you want. <laughs> and... It was a very popular event. We, I think we had 1,200 people last year, and we cleared a lot of money. As a result, it was a great fundraiser. This year, we're doing it virtually. We'll ship oysters to your house if you sign up. I guess it's too late since this is tomorrow night. Um, it's not too late for me, though. We, we won't make as much money. Um, but anyway, 
So that's why fundraising is really it, it is really important to us. We we have government grants, we have uh, you know private foundations supporting us, and then we also raise a lot of money from the public because there's a real interest in in what we're doing and a belief in it. Um, volunteering has been a fantastic way to get involved. It's much tougher this year. In the past, yeah. people have helped us build the cages and the reef structures. They're usually made of mesh, metal mesh, um, welding, rebar. Um, they all need to be filled with restaurant shell. Those are all great volunteer jobs. Um, and then placing the reefs and monitoring the reefs, those are all, all volunteer activities that people really love. And we have a volunteer coordinator and a great space on Governor's Island where people can come and, and work. Um, this year, it's been really limited. But if you go to the website and click on volunteering, there are some opportunities to work on the island, shoveling shells, making cages. It's just much smaller numbers. It's harder to, you've got to sign up in advance. And it's just not, it's not as, it's just, well, you know, this year is, 2020. It's, it's all falling apart. It's, it's just the worst year in the history of civilization. Well, maybe not, but it's pretty bad. <laughs> well, people listening, I mean, you all know, or if you're listening for the first time, uh, whatever application you're listening to this in, you just go to the notes for this, and there'll be a direct link to the website and to that stuff, so people can go check that out and learn more uh, or get involved and participate. Um, you know, this is one I've been thinking about for a really long time. Uh, I think I was mentioning that before we were recording. So I am incredibly fortunate to get to talk to a really diverse range of people doing really interesting things. And this is one that really fascinates me. So I uh, just want to thank you, Rob. Like, this was a, a real pleasure to get to talk to you and to share the story. So thank you. Great. Well, thank you. And uh, next time we do this, we'll do it in a boat. And uh... Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. Okay. Cool. Cheers, man. Thank you. All right, that is a wrap on episode number 187 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you to Rob and thank you to Helene for setting up this episode. Helene works for the Billion Oyster Project and she does their uh, communications and, and outreach. So thank you, Helene. Thank you, Rob. Thank you to all of you Voyagers for tuning in. Remember that I've got stickers and stuff like that and I give the stickers out for free. So if you ever want to shoot me a DM on any social media platform or shoot me an email, I would be very happy to send you some stickers because I'm doing a new order now and I'm just sending out the last uh, remaining stickers from the last batch. So do that. I love hearing from people and keep listening. More cool stuff coming up very soon. So one final time, thank you. And as always, please take care of each other. Peace. Mm -hmm.